We've been singing about this story for three weeks, and now it happens. <laughs> it's a long one, but a good one. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed towards the people, and they said, What have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites, who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers, and his army. They overtook them camped by the sea, by Phihathamoth, in front of Bezathon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to his people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and, and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and the chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. 
He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. As Heather said, we're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Exodus. We're getting to the really good stuff now. Uh, well, let's pray. Plant our feet firmly in the ground below us, O Lord. Plant our feet firmly in the ground below us and take away all our fear. Through your word, show us your strength and show us your power. Show us that in Christ, you are making all things new and we only need to stand still and watch it unfold. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand firm, says Moses to Israel, stand firm, do not be afraid, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to keep still. These are Moses' instructions to the Israelites after God sent plague after plague. Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, finally gave in and let his people go, but it was not for long. After they were out, Pharaoh changed his mind, and soon enough, the Israelites find themselves camped by the Red Sea ground rumbling underneath with the sound of thousands of chariots. Just when they thought that they were gone, that they were out, that they were free, the Egyptian army ends up barreling down and on them. You know, understandably, the Israelites freak out at Moses. They'd rather be slaves back in Egypt than dead, to which Moses replies, stand firm, do not be afraid, 
The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to keep still. And the Lord just does that. Moses turns towards the sea. He raises his staff. The waters part, making wet walls on either side. The pillar of fire that's leading them comes up behind. There's a path across the dry seabed, and the cloud of the Lord blocks the Egyptians' way, acting as a sort of smoke screen to cover their escape. And eventually the Egyptians gain on them, but their chariots get jammed up in the red seabed. They panic. By then the Israelites are scot-free on the shore anyway. And Moses stretches out his hand again, and the mighty Egyptian armies are washed away, drowned by the might of Yahweh. Did no Pharaoh get lost? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Israel was cornered, fearful, willing to go back into chains rather than stay out in the wilderness to get slaughtered, outnumbered, outgunned, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and then God split the sea, bringing them across to safety, and then crushed the army of the world's largest superpower. And all Israel had to do was stand firm, stay still, just like Moses said. It's an incredible story. One of the core stories of the Bible, a cornerstone in both Christian and Jewish traditions, in fact. And of course, as modern, scientific, rational people, we find all this sea parting, army drowning stuff rather difficult to believe. Bodies of water don't just don't shove aside like Plato. That's just not the way that things work. The idea offends our contemporary sensibilities and, you know, uh, fiddles a little with the laws of physics. That question aside, though, I wonder if there's an idea we find even more offensive expressed here than simple skepticism. There's something more offensive. And the idea is this, that we, we would be counseled to do nothing in the face of an overwhelming threat. The idea that we would do nothing at all, that's the real offense, because that's exactly what Moses tells Israel to do. Stand still, because the Lord will fight for you. I mean, just imagine yourself doing the following. Dear Vladimir Zelensky, I know the Russians are at the door, but really all you've got to do is stand still because the Lord will fight for you. Or you're running for election. What's your policy on climate change? Well, I think we should stand still. That's number one. I think we really think that we should stand still. Or somebody says to you, my son is on the streets and he's one fentanyl smoke away from an overdose, what should we do? I mean, stand firm. Stay still. The Lord will fight for him. Just put yourself into any scenario and imagine saying this and you can see how absurd and offensive it really sounds. I mean, you've said it before. You've literally said it before. Don't stand, just stand there, do something. And you've heard it said that the only way that evil triumphs is for when good men or women do nothing. 
in a world of so much heartache, so much wrong, so much that needs to be righted, it sounds like a denial of responsibility. An invitation to passivity. An acceptance of the status quo. The idea of standing still and letting God do our fighting for us is offensive. Irresponsible, like, what would we ever get done if we just waited on God? I mean, you hear stuff like this, and it sounds like Karl Marx, the great economic philosopher, was right when he said that religion was the opiate of the masses, lulling people to sleep with the promises that God would do something. It sounds like that. And yet, this text actually seems to have the opposite effect whenever it's deployed. Last year around Passover, Sharon Bruce, a Los Angeles rabbi, wrote this fascinating piece in the New York Times telling the story of the, quote, slave Bible. The slave Bible. Originally published in 1807, it was intended for use in worship by enslaved people in the British West Indies. And the unique thing about this Bible was that it had removed the story of the Exodus altogether. Imagine a Bible with no Moses, she says. No Moses, no burning bush, no Israelites for fleeing slavery, no split sea, and no revelation at Mount Sinai. But this is what they did to this particular Bible. They cut out Exodus. And why drop stories like this? I mean, remember, these are, this story invites us into passivity. Well, she says... The slaveholders were surely concerned that enslaved people would see themselves in the Israelite struggle for liberation, that they would find strength in God's identification with the oppressed, and be inspired by the triumph of faith over one, even one of the strongest regimes of the ancient world. They may have feared that this story, the story of the Exodus, would plant the seeds of possibility, if not the seeds of rebellion. They may have feared that this story would plant the seeds of possibility, if not the seeds of rebellion. I mean, does that sound like passivity to you? Sounds like the opposite to me, actually. The slave Bible dropped the Exodus because it was dangerous. Not just because it gave slaves the idea that they could rebel, because slaves have done that all the time. I mean, you've seen, a, I'm Spartacus. You know, I'm no, I'm Spartacus. That was a slave rebellion. No, what was truly dangerous was the idea that the God, that God, the creator of the universe. Ooh, somebody's already listening to my sermon on the feed, live feed there. It was a fact that God, the creator of the universe, was already 
Um, they were probably trying to fast forward it. Mm, boring. Um, <laughs> the fact that God was already on the side of their salvation, that they could stand still and empires would eventually fall. The idea that God was working for it to come about, that God was already making a way out of slavery and into the promised land. You know, Martin Luther King said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, the whole idea is that God bends the universe towards justice. That the exodus is going to come whether we like it or not. The truly dangerous thing about the exodus wasn't that it took away people's agency, doesn't that takes our agency away, that it makes us passive. No, the truly dangerous thing is that it gives us hope. The hope that like Israel at the Red Sea, backed into a corner, nowhere to go, outnumbered and outgunned, that freedom isn't just a possibility, but it is inevitability. Not an a possibility, but an inevitability, all on account of God. The truly dangerous thing about the Exodus is because it inspires hope in hopeless situations. That is the dangerous thing about the Exodus, that it inspires hope because God is already at work. Now, what's interesting is that the New Testament takes the liberation narrative from Exodus and it kind of puts it on steroids, right? It beefs it up even more. Because in the New Testament, the Exodus doesn't just become a hope for a people, but a hope for all people and for all of creation. The early church picked up on this story and applied it to, well, who does the early church usually apply all of these Old Testament stories to? Guess? Jesus. You know, if you ever get stuck in Sunday school and you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, and you know, it's a good chance that it will be right. In his death and resurrection, Jesus had not only parted the Red Sea, but the waters of death itself. And in his resurrection, drowned the powers of sin, death, and the devil in his wake. I mean, we sang it last week whenever we sang, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. This is application of Jesus to the Exodus. And if you were here for the Easter vigil service last year, the service special service where we celebrated baptisms and baptismal renewals, you'll remember that this text was one of the readings. It's one of the required readings. It says in my little book, there's like 18 readings that you're supposed to read, but if you must cut them down, the story of the Red Sea is one of them that you've got to keep. That's because the early church saw such rich imagery in this story with baptism recalling the parting of the waters. In the same way God brought Israel through the waters of slavery into the promised land, in Jesus God brings us through the chaos and brokenness of human life into the promised land, that safe shore 
we call the kingdom of God. To be brought through the waters of baptism is to join Christ on the journey out of slavery through the waters of death towards the freedom of everlasting life. At its heart, it means that it means that our future is not only a possibility, but it is a future that is assured by the Almighty Himself. It is a divine promise. The path is made, and all we have left to do is step out in faith. This story is not an excuse for passivity. Rather, it is a proclamation of hope and a summons to freedom. We too can take heart, whether we find ourselves despairing about the state of the world or the state of our lives. No matter how hard our backs up are against the wall, it says that in the end, God wins. It says, in the end, God wins. Now, last month, I had the opportunity to visit my friend and mentor, Edwin Searcy, and he gifted me with uh, one of my many hand-me-down stoles here. Gift from Ed. Some of you have met Ed. He was a minister at the United Church I attended when I was in seminary, and he supervised my internship when I was getting ready to be ordained to this congregation. In fact, Ed was the preacher at uh, the celebration of ministry service, and you may have heard, remember that quite well. Ed's been the single biggest impact on my ministry, so you can either thank him or blame him for whatever I do. Now, if you know Ed, you'll also know that Ed has been living with multiple myeloma, a rare terminal blood cancer. The original diagnosis for him was devastating because patients at the time didn't make it past a few years at best, even with treatment. But thanks to a combination of advances in treatment and good fortune, he's made it 10 years without a single symptom of cancer. So praise God for that. More recently, though, Ed has been dealing with issues of short-term memory loss and spatial difficulties. A few months ago, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia. And when I visited him, he was relatively normal. We talked nonstop about church and theology and without really missing a beat, Cheyenne asked, you know, did you, did you ask each other about your families and stuff? And of course we didn't. We didn't talk about that stuff. I mean, we just talked about Karl Barth and theology and those other things. It was a good visit. But Ed confided in me that while his cancer diagnosis was really hard and scary, his latest diagnosis was even more so. Because with his cancer, he knew he was going to die. But at least he'd know who he was and where he was when he did. With this, though, he could lose control of his mind, his body, his memory. He might not even recognize his children or his grandchildren. I guess you could say that he was 
afraid. He could hear the Egyptians rumbling off in the distance, dementia bearing down on him with nowhere else to go. And you know what? When he said that, I wanted to say something comforting to him. I found myself a little tongue-tied, though. I'll be honest, I felt kind of helpless. I can't remember what I exactly said, but it was something like, don't give up. I didn't want to take a sense of agency away from him because that's the thing that I knew that he feared losing the most. He was worried that he would just stand still and watch his life go by. I wanted to say something that would put a little fight into him, but you know what? I don't think that I did. Because the truth is that one day the fight's going to go out in him and all of us for good. It's only just a matter of when. Thank God for the scriptures, though. What I should have done was taken a page out of Exodus, out of Moses' book, Instead, what should I have said? Stand firm. I should have said, stand firm. Be not afraid. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to keep still. Why? Because that's the promise of the gospel. Because in Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, God has done all the fighting we can't do for ourselves. Because in Jesus' resurrection, God has blazed a path through the dark, dead-end sea of helplessness, death, and despair. In Jesus, he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us without our doing it all, lighting that fiery pillar of grace at the end that nobody can ever put out. This is the song that breaks the chains of slavery and brings life to the dead. It means that even when we have no fight left in us, we can stand firm and be not afraid. Even when we can't stand anymore, we can just stay still and see what God will do. That's what I should have said then. But I'm saying it to you now. The good news of the gospel is just that. In the end, God wins. In the end, the promise is this. Injustice, prejudice, hatred, violence, oppression, and human misery will all be washed away like the chariots of Egypt in the Red Sea. It's the promise that the great sea of human tears that hems in human life has been parted and we are being led through it by the Spirit. That because of who God is and what God has done, it means that in the end, every wrong will be made right. All things will be made new. And everything sad will become 
untrue. God will do our fighting for us. All we need to do in the end is stand still. Which means that you can stand still. You can stand firm in your convictions no matter the odds. You can love God with all you are and you can love your neighbors as yourself with all you've got. You don't have to be exhausted by fear or anxiety. You don't have to be undermined by the size of the world's problems or be beaten down by helplessness. No. Because in the end, it's not all up to you. In the end, it's not all up to us. We know who's fighting. We know who's already won. And we know how the story is supposed to end. So, stand firm, dear friends. Stand firm. Be not afraid. For the Lord your God is fighting for you. Not only fighting, but has won. So step out into the sea. Step out and have faith. Step out, believe it. Believe it and live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. stand as you are able for our hymn of the day, my, my lighthouse. 